This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is David Cole. David is a partner at Holland and Knight in Holland and Knight's uh, corporate and securities groups. He assists public and private companies to complete domestic and overseas merger, acquisition and divestiture transactions, raise equity and debt capital in public and private securities offerings, and obtain financing through private equity and venture capital investments. He's, David has closed more than $2 billion worth of capital and other securities offerings. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the life cycle of of a government contractor from a capital structure perspective. Uh, David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Oh, thanks so much, Roger. It's great to be here. This is a you know fascinating area to me. And you look at uh, government contractors and their capital structure and what it means in terms of you know structuring themselves for success over the long term. So let's start you know first by just talking about what is capital structure um, and why it's important? You know, just let's go. We'll do, go through the 101 on capital structure. Okay, David? Sure. Happy to. Um, so at an eagle eye level, capital structure basically is how the equity and the debt of a government contractor is organized. You should think of it like a ladder uh, with each rung on the ladder from the bottom to the top having differing levels of priority with respect to the assets of the company uh, upon a liquidation. And it's really important to think about how a company, especially a government contractor, organizes its capital structure. And that's because capital structure can be used as a tool. It's a tool to incentivize behavior designed to help grow the company for all of its stakeholders and not just as a means to reward those who come in first. And one of the things I think we talked about in prep for this is too, is thinking, you know, strategically about how you attract, and we'll, and we'll go through the rungs of the ladder in a second, but just, you know, thinking about a company from the big picture is, you know, attracting, attracting investors. It's not just all about cash. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Roger. Um, It's very important for companies to think not about, not only about the amount of the capital that it's raising, but also from whom uh, the company is raising this capital. It's very important to attract uh, investors to your company, whether they're equity or debt investors, that will uh, have a role to play in the growth of the company. It's not enough these days just to provide uh, the the financing. Uh, There's lots of liquidity out there in the markets these days. And so companies should be choosy and they should choose wisely where their capital comes from and they should find sources of capital that can contribute to the overall direction, strategic direction and growth of the company. Right. So I have to 
put it in layman's terms <laughs> and maybe uh, yeah, you'll uh, hopefully you get a chuckle out of us. Like I always think about when you talk, when you talk about that, you know, shark tank for lack of it, right. That, you know, the folks who go on there aren't just looking for the, you know, the cash investment, you know, and, and what their company's uh, valuation is, you know, ter- related to that cash investment. They're really looking for partners, right. To help them grow the business and bringing other things in just the cash to the table. Yes, Roger, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the valuation of the company is obviously critical uh, and getting, getting the money in at a, at, a, at a strong valuation. And we'll talk about a lot about this uh, in, in another segment is really important. Um, you don't want to give away too much of the equity of the company early on in the, in the life cycle of the company. You're going to need that later. But it's also really important to make sure that the folks that you're aligning with um, share your vision, share your culture, share your interests, share your specialty, share your specialized knowledge in, in that area of, of your industry in which you excel. And so, yes, it's very important to try to find uh, skilled uh, early stage investors who can add and be accretive not only to the, to the capital structure of the company, but to the brain trust of the company too. Right. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned culture because that's, it's, of successful organizations, you know, regardless of whether it's government industry or wherever, basketball teams, hockey teams, for example, you know, the culture is, you know, is critical to that success. And you've got to ha- have people who share that vision and that culture. Um, so that's a great point. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, I guess the latter a little bit and just the, you know, the rules around um, debt and equity when you're, when you're at this initial stage where we're, we're starting to think about capital structure and how to organize a company? Sure, absolutely. So the general rule uh, is that debt is always paid before equity. And so what that means is that if there's a liquidation of the company, and by the way, liquidation, sometimes people think that's a really bad thing. They hear about you know a liquidation sale and the company's going on a business. Well, There are bad liquidations and there are good liquidations too. A good liquidation happens when there's uh, either a full or a partial uh, liquidity event, a sale of the company, either in whole or in part. And those can be very good for the owners of the business. But the general rule is that at any liquidity event, whether it's a bad one or a good one, uh, the debt is paid before the equity. And so the debt is going to sit higher up Uh, on that ladder. Um, Debt can take many, many forms. Um, Obviously, people associate debt with uh, a bank loan. Sure, that's absolutely debt. Um, But there's lots of other different types of debt that's out there too. And company CFOs and CEOs need to keep that in mind uh, when they are organizing and planning their capital structure. Mandatory obligations to pay investors an agreed rate of return, for example, is considered debt. Um, You may have bid and performance bonds out there in order to get contracts. That's all debt, too. Um, Your contractual obligations to pay employees compensation and, and incentive compensation, all of this stuff is debt, not just bank loans and bonds and debentures and trade payables, all of it is debt. Right. So after debt comes equity, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. 
equity is broken up into lots of, of subgroups as well. It's not just the common equity. The common equity is, is what most folks are, are aware of when they form a, a company. And the founders typically take uh, common equity. Um, it is the security that represents the right to the earnings and profits uh, of the business. And it also is the type of security that bears the greatest amount of risk, too, um, because the common sits behind not only the debt, but it also sits behind the preferred equity as well in the capital structure of the company. Preferred equity is the type of equity that a company would typically issue to uh, a professional early stage uh, investor, like a venture capital fund, for example. And preferred stock um, has certain hybrid-like characteristics to it. Yes, it's a security, but it also has contractual rights associated with it. And those contractual rights can vary from preferred to preferred to preferred. Sometimes uh, a preferred shareholder will ask for certain mandatory returns on its invested capital. Sometimes preferred shareholders ask for uh, a a dividend uh, to accrue or be payable. Um, And there are all kinds of interesting uh, rights and protections and preferences that a preferred shareholder would would ask of the company that's issuing that preferred to the investor. And then there's a one last category that I want you to talk about, and that's synthetic equity holders. You know, who are those folks? So synthetic equity holders are lots of different um, folks that are stakeholders in the company and have an incentive to see the company uh, grow and and prosper. But these are folks who don't actually hold a security that's been issued by the company. They are not common shareholders. They're not preferred shareholders. They're this large amorphous group of others. They could be option holders. Uh, They could be folks who have SARs, which we call stock appreciation rights. They could hold phantom stock. They could hold convertible notes. Um, They're all different kinds of synthetic equity holders, including RSUs and others. Um, But but at the end of the day, these are folks, often employees of the company, it doesn't have to be, that are incentivized through this synthetic equity to help the company grow. Right, well, David, you know what? We're already up on the break. But when we come back, I just want you to talk a little bit about the considerations when you're thinking about the right mixture of all those different you know, types of debt to incentivize you know, all the holders to grow the company. And then we can start talking a little bit about early stage financing and what that is and you know, why, how you set the stage for success. My guest today is David Cole. He is a partner at Holland & Knight's Corporate and Securities Groups. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Cole. David is a partner with Holland and Knight's Corporate and Securities Groups, and we're talking about the life cycle of a government contractor and the importance of capital structure and you know building that foundation for success in the federal market. And 
David, when we took the break, you know, we'd, you had gone through all the different types of uh, debt and equity and the priorities therein with regard to capital structure. But I wanted you to talk a little bit too about, you know, the importance of, of the right mixture of the various types that you went over, whether it's synthetic, preferred, common equity, and all the different types of secured, unsecured debt, just how that structure is critically important to a company's success and what people need to think about. And, you know, as part of that, you can transition to talking about early stage financing, which I think, it, which is the focus of this segment. Super. So the, the right mixture uh, of debt and equity in a company's capital structure is, it, it's very important, but it's also very malleable. It can change uh, and should change uh, over the life cycle of, of a company. So, Really early on in the life of a company, before the company perhaps has a proven concept, before the company often has revenue, it's highly unlikely that the company will be able to attract uh, debt capital from a bank. Um, Instead, it it must rely on early stage equity investors like uh, what we often call friends and family. Um, They may also find uh, capital from the other founders of the business. And sometimes there are early, really early stage investors that we call angels uh, that are willing to put up uh, some amount of money, uh, recognizing that at this very, very early stage of the business, there's tremendous risk associated with making that angel investment. Um, But once the company has a track record, it's a lot easier to start to inject some debt into the capital structure. And that's important for the founders because although debt might have a a higher position on that ladder, it's not dilutive on a per share basis to to the equity holders. And that is sometimes very important to, to founders. So as the company matures, as it grows, it's going to be critical um, for the managers of the company to constantly monitor uh, the leverage of the company. Uh, It's very important to make sure you have that right mixture so that you have enough borrowing capacity, enough debt to fuel your current operations, but not too much debt, not too much leverage on the balance sheet that might prevent the company from acting nimbly uh, when new opportunities arise, whether that's bidding on new contracts Um, partnering with other uh, contractors or acquiring new businesses. All of those things will require financing and capital. And you want to make sure that you've got enough uh, leverage in your capital structure to allow you to borrow when you have to. So when you're a company's thinking about that, what what are some of the things that they should be thinking about to try to manage that uh, effectively to obviously when you have your angel investors or your friends and families in the startup you know, of, a, of a company, you know, you, in a certain sense, you know, their incentive is to see that their investment is protected too. What are some of the things that uh, are tools for, for managing that? Sure. So there are a number of things that, that the founders of the business need to think about when they're taking on um, early stage um, capital. They want to make sure that they can keep their cap table, we call it a cap table, capitalization table, uh, which basically just has a list of all of your investors and what they've purchased and how much they've purchased and what they came in at and what their fully diluted percentages and all those kinds of things. They want to keep that cap table 
as um, tight, clean, neat uh, as, as possible. Um, because as you attract later stage um, venture capital or, or capital from, prefer, uh, from private equity funds, um, they're going to want to see a clean, uh, a clean cap table. And the more complicated it is, the more confusing it is to later stage investors, the, the more difficult it's going to be to get that, that capital. So one of the things that you can do as a founder with your very early stage capital, your friends and families and your angels, is you can try to obtain mandatory redemption rights in this capital, meaning that if you buy back uh, the equity at a certain pre-designated rate of return, which is often a very healthy return, because again, these early stage investors are taking on a lot of risk. So they're going to expect to get uh, a reward for that risk. But assuming that you've got sufficient cash flow and you can take them out of the capital structure, sometimes it's very good to do that and do that at a previously agreed mandatory rate of return. Right. So along those lines, can you talk a little bit about, and one of the things, you know, in our conversations, you know, the, the fundamental importance of valuation uh, when you're starting out, can you talk about that a little bit? Valuation's everything right. um, at, at the early stage. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is everything. And investors and companies will have long and sometimes very tiring conversations about valuation. But what's really important for the founders of, of um, any business, especially a, a government contractor who is probably going to have fairly predictable streams of, of revenue in the, in the future, but not likely to, to, you know, take off like a rocket ship. It's very important for these founders not to give away too much equity at the beginning. Sometimes founders are too quick to give away too much equity. And what does that mean? Well, that means setting a valuation that's too low for the amount of the investment that's coming in. Um, the higher the valuation, the less percentage uh, of the equity, uh, common equity of the company will be represented by this, by this investment. And it's really important to have the equity capacity because later when the business starts to grow and the business starts to mature, the business is going to want to attract talent and good talent, key talent uh, you'll want to attract are going to be people who have uh, the similar vision that you have um, and the cultural fit that you want to have. But you want them to be long-term uh, players with your company. And in order to, to incentivize them to stay long-term, um, equity is often used. And if you don't have that equity because you've given away too much of it earlier in your, in your cycle, you're going to have some problems. So it's really, really important to set that value um, as high as possible. Uh, understand where you are in your industry or your subset of the industry understand your projections, understand the assumptions that underlie those projections and make sure that they're reasonable and, and, and achievable uh, and, and put real solid effort into backing up uh, your valuation. The more work you do now, uh, the more dividends, pun intended, it will pay later in your life cycle. All right, just uh, we have about a minute left, and I wanted to. I think you've touched on these things a little bit uh, earlier, but just sort of two thoughts. And you know, one is how, how should you choose that early stage investor when you you, you know, we're talking about valuation and and equity and that sort of thing. And 
The other thing that seemed to come across for me is, you know, keeping that capital structure as simple as possible in the beginning to, to create that fundamentals to, to be able to move forward and have the flexibility over the life cycle to, to get done what you did. I know sir, they're, they're related things, but just your quick thoughts on those and then we'll have to take the next break. Sure. Uh, well, again, obviously the, the capital structure is a tool um, and, and companies should use it to incentivize behavior. Um, you, you choose an investor who's going to help to add value um, to your company, someone who has a special knowledge about your technology or your industry, someone who's got a track record of helping other companies grow, um, especially uh, companies in your particular subset of the industry. Um, and it's really important to try to find you know, the right investor, not just the capital, not just the money, but the right investor. And there are things that you can do while you're negotiating um, your investments as well to try to protect uh, the equity in the capital structure and make sure that there's plenty of equity left um, later in the life cycle of the company. Right. So, uh, David, so we are up on the break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Are you going down the, up the ladder or down the timeline, I guess, with regard to the uh, life cycle of a government contractor and you know, thinking about the decisions affecting capital structure? and what it mean, all means for the success of the company. Moving to exit, right, at the end of the day, uh, and a positive exit, not a negative exit. So my guest today is David Cole. David is a partner at Holland & Knight's Corporate and Securities Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Cole. David is a partner with Holland and Knight's Corporate and Securities Groups. Uh, David has closed more than $2 billion worth of debt capital and other securities offerings. Um, he also serves as Holland and Knight's Korea practice. And I note from his bio that he is he served or acted as in-house counsel for the National Hockey League's Buffalo Sabres. Uh, and we'll get to that later in the show, I think, David. But um, in this segment, uh, David, you're talking about uh, at the end, we finished the last segment talking about structure and protecting equity in the firm to be able to have that flexibility moving forward. Can you talk about some of the things uh, you know a company could think about doing, um, you know, in, in in setting the stage for you know that that success? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Roger. Um, when companies are considering their earliest stage investments, um, it's too easy sometimes to just focus on that one particular transaction. That's really important for companies not to lose sight of the entire capital structure of the company as they're taking in uh, even the earliest uh, investment. As we talked about before, if the valuation is too low, the founders are going to suffer unnecessary dilution. And that's the kind of dilution that can never, ever be recaptured again. So it's really, really important for founders to make sure that they can support that, that valuation. Um, in addition, you need to think about the future and you need to think about people who will become stakeholders in the company, even if they're not stakeholders right now. And a clear example of that are employees. So it's really important when you're designing your capital structure to keep in mind that companies who want to compete for the best talent out there, they need to reserve at least 
of the equity capital of their company for not just the, the brain trust of the company, but for the rank and file of the company. And the rank and file who have worked at other very successful companies are going to ask for things like options or RSUs or other forms of synthetic equity, and they're going to expect it. And if you can't offer that to them, you may find that you're putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage. You need to also have a strong network of others that you can fall back on so that you don't need to take the earliest capital that's offered to you. The earliest capital may not be the best capital for all the reasons that we talked about before in attracting the best investors to your company. Um, you know, it's important that you understand that the, the markets are constantly in flux and they're constantly changing. And so when early stage investors come to you and say, well, this is market and this is what always happens. When people start talking about always and never, that's when your, your ears should perk up because there really isn't an always and there really isn't an ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, these things are, are all malleable and subject to negotiation, things like liquidation preferences. Years ago, they were very, very high, but they've retreated in the recent years because there's so much liquidity out there. Um, understand that there's a huge difference in anti-dilution rights uh, that investors may ask for. Um, if they come to you and say full ratchet is market, uh, you should be prepared to push back and explain why. Um, paper, everything. Lots of people want to do in these handshake deals. That is a surefire way uh, to get into trouble uh, down the road. Um, and, and if you want to have uh, a law firm uh, on retainer full time to defend all these lawsuits, go ahead and do the handshake deals. But if you'd prefer not to talk to people like me off, uh, all that often, then let's, you know, please get everything down on paper. <laughs> and then finally, it's really, really important to watch your cash flow uh, over time. Um, think about the fact if you're going to uh, promise to accrue a dividend over time, Understand what that's going to do to your cash flow once you have to declare and pay that dividend. Ask yourself if that dividend is compounding. As it compounds, it's only going to become more of a drag on your cash flow. Um, do you have any mandatory puts in your preferred stock? Um, that is a feature that allows your investors to come and knock on your door one day and say, uh, it's been great knowing you, but it's time for me to move along and I'll take my check now. Uh, you know, these are all things that are um, potentially very serious drags on the cash flow of the company and things that uh, good managers need to um, reserve for. Right. You know, one of the things that I found interesting and in, in the things you just talked about uh, went through is um, just the idea of understanding where your business fits in a, you know, in a, in a market sector and, that some businesses are simply more valuable if they're in the right place in the right time. Do you have any sense what you're right now in the, what you're seeing in the market, what those areas would be? It seems to me, you know, cyber would be one where people are, everybody's focused on cyber. It's a government issue. It's a private sector issue and how, uh, you know, it's, that seems to be an area to me as well. Um, and probably healthcare, big data. I don't know your thoughts yeah. on that. 
Yeah, Roger, I think you're you're absolutely right that for government contractors, there are different subsectors of of the industry. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of the truth of the matter that that some segments are are viewed as being more valuable by both equity and debt investors than than other segments of the market. And that's because um, they're in segments of of high demand uh, by federal government customers. So what we're seeing these days from federal government customers that are really uh, in demand are the, the, the things that you mentioned. So cyber, absolutely. Uh, you don't have to you know, get past uh, page uh, one or two of the newspaper these days and, and read about you know, all kinds of terrible um, uh, cyber events, uh, in, in, including uh, those at the, at the federal government level, federal agency level, program level and the contractor level within within uh, the federal uh, system. So cyber absolutely is one of them. Space, believe it or not, is another one that is highly valued right now. You see a lot written about what we're doing um, with respect to hypersonic uh, technologies, uh, autonomous technologies, things of that nature. They're all very, very valuable right now. Health, for obvious reasons, as you mentioned, and the other one that, that's been around for a long time now, but it's not gone anywhere, is certainly um, big data and the ability to compute um, rapidly and, and, and find needles in, in, in haystacks uh, are obviously very, very valuable to federal uh, government customers, whether they're on the DOD side or, or on the, um, the Intel side. Uh, they're all, all of these technologies, uh, skills and services are very, very valuable. Yeah, to your point, you can take a look at the headlines and see where the government focus is going to be. And I think it will be interested, interesting to see what, you know, what happens with the uh, infrastructure bill and what that leads to in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's broadband or other aspects of IT modernization in, in particular that may be in there, you know, beyond like the federal government, which I think you know, got, got a billion dollars for the IT modernization fund, you know, in the last, uh, you know, um, stimulus package like that, that was passed. But just to seeing what's, what's in there, I'm, I'm sure uh, you guys are going to be looking at that as well. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely, Roger. You're, you, you're, you hit it, the nail right on the head. I mean, lots of our clients um, are in the IT modernization space, um, whether it's 5G rollout um, or other classified IT projects, um, lots and lots of our, of our um, government contractor clients are involved in, in that segment of the industry. And, and um, they are so busy, um, they, can't, uh, they can't hire enough. And, it, and sometimes it, it feels to us at least that they are just swimming against the tide because there's such tremendous demand for those, uh, those services. Yeah. There's where there's demand, there's opportunity, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, Absolutely. Hey, you know, David, we're already up on the break. So we've got one more segment and I think next segment we'll talk a little bit about the debt equity mixture and also, you know, how you prepare, um, for that exit, um, you know, or liquidation as you refer to it in the first segment. And again, that does that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that could be the sale, the purchase, you know, merger, who knows what. But um, when we come back, we'll we'll try to tackle those two topics in the in the last segment. My guest today is David Cole. He is a partner with Holland and Knights Corporate and Securities Groups. 
I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Cole. David is a partner with Holland and Knight's corporate and security groups. He assists public and private companies to complete domestic and oversees merger, acquisition, and divestiture transactions, help them raise equity and debt capital in public and private securities offerings, and obtain financing through private equity and venture capital investments. Um, He has closed more than $2 billion worth of debt capital and other securities offerings. Uh, He also served as the in-house counsel for NHL's uh, Buffalo Sabres. And, you know, you know, as a Bruins fan, uh, you know, I have appreciation for the Buffalo Sabres as well. So, but anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. Uh, I'll give you a chance to, to respond if you like about the Sabres and Bruins. But, um, but, but where we were um, when we took the break is we're going to talk a little bit about debt and debt equity mixtures and then turn to planning for your exit strategy or liquidation. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing when you're talking about a sale uh, of, of a company. So, uh, David, go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Roger. So, uh, as the company continues to grow, it's going to need to finance that growth. And at this point in, in the life cycle of the company, it's quite common for the company to want to reach out to a financial institution, uh, whether that's a bank or another non bank lending source. And uh, it's really important for companies to understand what it means to reach out to banks and obtain uh, debt capital for their growth. The debt uh, comes in lots of different uh, shapes and colors and sizes, and there's no uh, one size fits all when it comes to, to debt. And it's really important to also understand that debt is not priced uh, the same way that equity is priced. Equity is pretty simple to understand. Um, You have an enterprise valuation and you subtract the debt and whatever is left is your equity. You divide it by the number of shares or units that you have and boom, you've got a per share price for your equity. It's not that simple when it comes to debt. Um, Debt is not just priced based on the interest rate. Uh, that one pays for the debt. It's priced based on uh, the maturity uh, of the debt, the tenor of the debt. It's priced uh, based on whether there's any original issue discount with the debt or mandatory prepayment obligations and premiums and all kinds of things. So it's really important for companies to understand exactly what they're getting into uh, when they take a loan. Right. So you know, something struck me in just looking at this issue and just the types of debt that are important for government contractors to have if acquiring a new business. Because that's, you know, a big part of the federal market. You know, there's lots of niche capabilities that develop over time. And when companies want to grow in the market, you know, in the federal market, oftentimes, obviously, just as in the private sector, you know, private commercial sort of looking at the market and how to expand, you know, companies acquire other companies because they want additional capability that to fill out, you know, their ability to support uh, government missions. Do you have thoughts on that? Absolutely. Roger, you're, you're so right. Uh, Companies are uh, charged with growth. They have to grow. I've heard uh, all kinds of expressions about this, uh, you know, grow or perish. 
Um, and, and we're in a very competitive market to, to grow our businesses organically um, through solely uh, acquiring new, uh, new task orders on existing contracts or, or new vehicles themselves. So companies, it's no secret, they try to um, project uh, growth through acquiring other businesses. And in order to do that, um, many times they have to finance uh, the acquisition of that new business. And hopefully they've been managing their capital structure well along the way so that they have that dry powder um, that we were talking about. And banks are going to take a look and do all kinds of testing um, to figure out if companies have that barring capacity or dry powder um, in order to finance the acquisition uh, that they want to make. So if a company has identified a target and they want to go after that target, they have to start thinking about the financing. Well, the financing is probably going to take the form of two different types of loans. One would be a term loan uh, that is a, a preset amount of money that is borrowed at a, often a variable interest rate. And uh, you have an amortization schedule that requires you to pay back principal and interest uh, uh, over the life of the loan. Pretty customary. Sorry, yeah. But there are also lines of credit that are available as well. And companies need to think very hard about tag teaming a line of credit with a term loan in its acquisition finance, because it's really important that the acquiring company have enough working capital post-closing of the acquisition to support uh, its existing and the acquired business. Because sometimes when you buy a company, you might think that you're acquiring sufficient working capital um, to move the business forward, meaning you, know, you have sufficient accounts receivable and things sure. of that nature that you can turn into cash post-closing. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, sometimes you think you're acquiring a certain amount of working capital, but perhaps the actual amount of working capital that's delivered is below the peg that you initially set. Now, that might entitle you to a purchase price uh, uh, deduction, but that's not going to help you when you have to put badges in seats at a, a, a government customer site. You need access to liquidity. And where is that going to come from? It's going to come from, hopefully, uh, your bank line of credit that you get when you get your uh, acquisition finance. Those are great points. And I want to turn to, you know, how a capital structure helps an exit, you know, and the liquidation that we, we, we began the show that you mentioned. But it seems to me what you described too, that, that due diligence and understanding, you know, the accounts receivable or the addressable market in, a, in the federal space, like, you know, what contracts are you on, all that kind of stuff. That all goes into the equation, like for advisors who are supporting a company who's seeking to acquire someone else and all that sort of thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely, Roger. Um, ARs are absolutely critical when you're thinking about the value of a company on an exit, but they're also critical when you're looking to get debt financing to acquire a company. Often these lines of credit not only are they going to be secured by all the assets of the business, but they're also going to be subject to what we call a borrowing base. And the borrowing base is basically an, a, an additional shield of protection for the lender. And the lender is going to say, well, 
we will only extend credit to you, the business, in amounts that are justifiable to us based on the level of ARs that you can quickly convert into cash. So if you have more ARs and they're good ARs, they're current, uh, you can borrow more. But as you have reductions to your uh, working capital, your AR balances decrease, your borrowing base will uh, concurrently decrease commensurate with the decrease in the AR balance, and you will have less uh, ability to, to, to draw on that revolver. And again, when the unexpected happens, and the unexpected can be good things too. You win a new contract and the contract requires you to have people right, you know, you at a faraway location in yeah. a certain period of time. Well, you've got to cover all those costs before you ever send your first invoice to that government customer. Yep. How are you going to do that? Right. Probably going to have to draw on the line and you're going to need ARs from prior work in order to, to support that. Right. Great points. So can you talk about, um, we have like two or three minutes left. Uh, I, it's my fault. We could have planned a little better. Or I asked, I'd, I had to ask a follow-up question, but you talk about capital structure and uh, how it helps execute an exit. Sure. Absolutely. So the capital structure is going to be front and center when uh, the owners of a business are planning an exit because that's basically what they're getting paid on. Um, they're getting paid on the fully diluted value of the company. So while the financial statements may show one uh, uh, measure of the, of the equity of the company, that measure might be completely different when you take into account options that have been issued and are unexercised. Um, RSUs that may not show up on, on the balance sheet, SARS, phantom stock, all kinds of things have to be taken into account. And so, again, planning for uh, all of this at, at exit time is very, very important to, to the owners of the business. And um, there's no one way, by the way, to exit a business as well. Um, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to exit the business by just selling the entirety of the business. That's not true. There are lots of other ways that you can get partial uh, exits that might uh, provide the owners of the business with a very sizable uh, return on, on what they've invested over the many, many years of running that business. Things like IPOs or uh, partial sales to private equity funds rollovers, roll-ups, joint ventures, all of these things allow the owners of the business to uh, lever their capital structure, uh, earn a, a nice return on, on the work that they've done so far, but yet at the same time have a stake in the continuing business of the company as, as it continues to serve its, its government and other customers. Great comments, great observations, David. I want to thank my guest today, David Cole. David is a partner with Holland & Knight's Corporate and Securities Groups. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.